0: This morning we are going to start through the book of Mark. And this will be a a sermon series, if you will, that we will be in for a while. And we'll have some little breaks along the way as we travel through Mark. But Mark is going to be uh, the first uh, gospel that we have looked at uh, together since I've been here. It will also be uh, really the first narrative book. And so you'll see that it's a little bit different as uh, we um, look at the book of Mark. The way you should understand uh, Mark's gospel, Mark is writing what, is, uh, what should be thought of as a theological biography. So what that means is that he doesn't include everything that Jesus ever did. Uh, he doesn't write about these long times every night when Jesus went to sleep. Um, As a matter of fact, Mark does not include uh, the birth narrative of Christ that is um, common, uh, that you're aware of from Matthew and Luke. And so it's very different in that. It's the shortest of the Gospels um, and uh, much shorter than Matthew, uh, Luke, or John. And I think it's going to provide for us a, a, a great study of the life of Christ. But what we should understand as we read these events from Christ's life, that the author has selected those events from a theological perspective. Um, It's not random. He's wanting to tell the big story of the life of Christ, and he did so by picking a series of events from Christ's life to tell us about. And of course, like all of the Gospels, much of this book will be focused later on in that last week of Christ's life. And it was that last week that was the definitive point in Christ's life, and so all the Gospel writers really take a lot of time to talk about the events. What you'll find is, as we go through Mark's Gospel, there will be uh, a quick movement through and then once we get to the last week, things slow down dramatically. And it's the same with all of the Gospels. is because the writers want to give us the most detail about that last week when Christ went to the cross for us. So when we conclude today's message, and I think it's very fitting that we do so, as you can kind of see here at the front, we are going to have the Lord's Supper. And so as I get to the end of the message this morning, I will talk to you about that, and then we will take a part in uh, that important part of our church's um, ministry and work in taking the Lord's Supper. So I want to invite you to stand as we read the first 11 verses of Mark's Gospel, beginning in Mark 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and, baptized, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being tore open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You may be seated. Mark does not mess around getting to the ministry of Christ. If you go and look at all of the other Gospels, it takes longer for them. They've got more stuff that they talk about before they get to the ministry of Christ. But here, Mark doesn't mess around. He wants to get us directly into the focus of his book. And so he tells us that that's going to be his purpose from the beginning. Because he writes in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to know that this is it. This is how it all started. This is how we get the good news. And he also doesn't mess around about telling you very directly who Jesus is. If you think about the life of Christ, if you know much about it, you understand that it's later in his life when his disciples begin to get some sense of who he is. But quite honestly, they still don't understand it very well until after he has died and after God has raised him from the dead. But Mark does not want to wait that long for his readers to understand who Jesus is. He tells them this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you're a church-going person, as you are at least today, that's a pretty common understanding. It's who we understand Jesus to be. But for those who are reading this for the first time, especially those who would come from a Jewish background, they would read this, and it would be kind of shocking. How is it that the one true God, who is the only God, how does he have a son? For those who would read on, the answer would be given to that question. It is meant to intrigue and draw you in. This is an important thing you're about to read because you are reading about the Son of God. And so since you're reading about the Son of God, it kind of demands that you read on because it's an important thing. What we're going to look at in these verses, this beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is about this great person, this great man, this great God who has come to us and how we should respond in light of who he is. Now quite frankly, to tell you the truth, that's kind of the subject matter of the messages every Sunday. Because that's the only thing that, quite honestly, is important. That God has sent His Son and we must respond to Him. And of course, we work that out in our relationships and we work that out in our finances and we work it out with our families and in our jobs and all of those things. But the, the thing that is most important is that God has sent His Son and we must respond to Him. So it begins by... In verse 2, giving us this quote. Here's the beginning of the gospel of Christ. And he gives us this reference from Isaiah. He wants us to understand that this Christ who has come on the scene, this one who this book is about, is not a new idea. But rather he is someone who has been pointed to, going all the way back to the beginning. And so he he quotes to us from Isaiah and he he tells us that he is going to send a messenger. This messenger will come. This messenger will prepare the way. This messenger will be a voice crying out in the wilderness. And then we're introduced to John. John. Now, John the Baptist, as we know him, is a relative of Jesus, and he has come on the scene a little bit before Jesus, and we're told here that he preaches this message. As a matter of fact, John is there, and he is in the river, and he is baptizing people, and we're told that all of Jerusalem and all the country of Judea come to him, and they want to be baptized. When we look at the other Gospels, we realize that John, just like Jesus would be after him, is a controversial figure. The religious leaders didn't like that he was drawing all of this attention. I have seen a lot of preachers like that too, right? You know, the other church starts getting everybody, and they get upset. Sometimes they're justified. In John's case, they're not. Because, see, John is preaching the message that they need to hear. Because they need to be prepared for the fact that Jesus is coming. And so he comes on the scene and he begins to tell them this message that they need to repent of their sins. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. See, if you know what is going on in the history at this time. The religious leaders, what they are telling people is, you've got all of these rules, and as long as you follow these rules, you're going to be okay. The, the time in which Jesus and John live, it's, it's a time of rules from a group called the Pharisees, the religious scholars, and they are telling them, okay, follow all of these rules, and you're going to make God happy. And they themselves really prided themselves, which is a problem, right? They prided themselves. They prided themselves on being really good at following these rules. And so John comes on the scene, and he doesn't come into town. You know, he's not there where the religious center is, he's out in the wilderness, he's out away from everything, and he's calling people to come to him and be baptized. And what they should do, instead of following all these rules, is that they need to turn from their sin. See, there's two dramatically different things. Because when we turn from our sin, what we acknowledge is that we are incapable on our own of following these rules. Have you ever read them? Go back in the Old Testament. Go back and dig deep and read the rules that are there. Are you able to follow those? Do you have that ability within you to to do all of those things? If you've never read them, some of them are, are pretty hard. Some of them are downright impossible. And so John comes on the scene and he begins to proclaim this message, not of following these rules, but of repenting of turning from your sin, and by turning from your sin, be forgiven by God. See, if John doesn't come and give this message, the message of Jesus later on wouldn't make a lot of sense. John comes as the one who is preparing the way, and he's proclaiming the one that's coming after him. He proclaims one that he says is greater than he. See, I think it's very interesting that the Bible tells us here that all these people are coming to Jesus i mean to John all these people, everybody's coming Every, he 's a, he's a superstar now he doesn 't look and act like a superstar he's not living the high life he's out in the middle of the wilderness and he's wearing a camel skin outfit and he's wearing a leather belt and he's eating bugs and honey the honey part is okay i'm just not sure about eating the locusts best i recall if you go back to the book of exodus they were used as a plague and now he's eating the thing that was once used as a plague He's not really embracing the rock star lifestyle, but it's what he is. I mean, everybody is coming. Everybody wants to hear what John has to say, everyone wants to participate in this, this baptism of repentance. It says everybody, all the country, verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. So they were going, they were going to hear what he had to say. But look, they're responding and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now think about this. This does not work for the religious establishment of John's day. They're saying you've got to follow all of these rules. And if you follow all of our rules, is what they're saying, if you follow all of our rules, you'll be okay. And that gave them a lot of power because they got to be the arbiters of what the rules were. They got to decide. So when you get to decide what the rules are and you can convince people that they've got to follow the rules to have a relationship with God, you're in a pretty powerful place. But when everybody walks out to John and they hear this message, I mean, this crazy-looking guy standing down in the river, and he's telling them that they need to be baptized, they need to repent of their sins, and they begin to do so. You really ruin the power of the religious leaders. You begin to chip away at it because people now can say, "When well, no, I." I've made my peace with God. I've I've repented before God. I've turned from my sin. I'm I'm not I'm not going that way that I was once going. I've been forgiven by God. Why do I need this continued beating over the head from these religious leaders? So John's got all of this going for him. He's got he's got all of this All of these people coming and and listening to him and following him and and responding to his message. And if that is as far as you read, you might have the notion that this book was going to be about John. But what Mark does in including this, this passage for us about what John did is he wants us to start out our reading through the gospel. He wants us to start as we begin to understand who Jesus was. To begin from the very beginning of the gospel, understanding our place in this story that is happening here. Now you say, well, I was not alive when this happened. I'm pretty sure none of you are 2,000 years old. If you are, you're aging pretty well. You should give us some secrets and tips. I have began to count some grays in my hair, which I'm very disappointed about. And so if you're 2,000 years old, I would appreciate words of wisdom. You say this happened 2,000 years ago. How am I involved in this story? See, the good news, there's good news there's a couple pieces of good news here. So this book is not about you. Now you say, well, how's that good news? That that hurts my feelings. Maybe you're here and you really thought this book was about you. I'm sorry. It's not. This book is about our God and who He is and what He's done and what He's called us to do. But the good news part is that from the beginning to the end, he talks about, God talks about himself, and he talks about himself in relationship with the people he's created. Go all the way back. After he creates the heavens and the earth, after he forms them, after he creates the mountains and the seas, and he, he speaks, and there is Adam. The story is about how he deals with us and how he works with us and how he helps us and how he judges us and how he encourages us and how he punishes us and how he brings us along, sometimes pulling, sometimes he's pushing. That's what God is doing in this grand story. And so Mark begins his gospel by putting in perspective how we relate to this Jesus that has made us. Because I think there's this idea, and it's so wrong, that what Jesus really is, is just our buddy. Everybody got a buddy in here? Everybody got a friend, right? I mean, I hope you got at least one friend. I I don't have a lot more than that, but I got at least one. Of course, my best friend decided he was going to move halfway around the world to Europe, so I don't know what that said about our friendship, but that's... Everybody's got a buddy, right? And buddies are good. Like you need a buddy to call and vent when things are going wrong and when you're hurting with something or when you need some advice. B-b-b- buddies are good. Friends are, are good. That's, when, we, when we put Jesus in that narrow of a view, it's not a good thing. Because Jesus is so much better than that. He's so much greater. He's so much bigger than your buddy. And John the Baptist gives us that example right from the beginning. That if we're going to understand Mark as we go through it, if we're going to understand our relationship with Christ, it will be about understanding where we fit in. So John the Baptist is one of the greatest human beings, the Bible tells us, that has ever lived and this is what he says. Remember, he's got a full house. Everybody's coming to see him. He's already got his mega church. He can start selling books, he can start selling merchandise. He's ready to go. And what does he do? Everybody's there. What does he say? Does he say, Follow me? No. Does he say, We're going to start a, a revolution? No. What's he say? Look, verse 7. Everybody's there. Everybody's being baptized. Everybody's confessing their sins. He's got his huge congregation ready to go. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me. After me. Comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Think about this now. In the day in which they're living, you've got to understand the context of this, you walked everywhere. And we're talking about the Middle East. This is a dusty place. It was not a person of high importance who would unstrap a master's sandal, right? I mean, that's, that's work that you would have a, a slave to do, a work you would have a servant to do. And John tells everybody who's listening, all the people, they've come out to him, they've been saved in John's church, they've been baptized in John's church. Everybody loves John. Everybody loves this crazy-looking guy with the camel skin and the belt and eating the bugs. He says, listen, it's not about me. It's not about me at all. It's not about me one bit. There's a guy who's coming after me. And I'm not even worthy enough to get down in the dust and mud and dirt and tie his shoe. Or untie his shoe. Do anything to his I'm not even worthy to get down in that place. That's how much greater he is than I. He says, if you think what I'm doing is great, verse 8, I've baptized you with water. He will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, what he is saying to them there is so radical, they would have had no context into what it would have meant. They couldn't have known fully what, what he was meaning when he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And go to the Old Testament and kind of read about the concept of that might happen one day. And John says it's going to happen when Jesus comes. So friends, that is our first proper response if we are going to understand Jesus If we're going to get anything as we study through Mark, if we're going to get anything out of our relationship with Christ, we have to understand and put into practice that he is far superior to us. We can't just sing about it in a song. We can't just have it as a a buzzword in a Bible study. We have to ultimately understand that he is great and we are inferior if John the Baptist is not unworthy to mess with Jesus' feet, where does that put me and where does that put you? See, we like to live like, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's great, but we're going to do whatever we want. Oh, Jesus is great and he said some nice stuff, but that's irrelevant when I leave church on Sunday. How foolish a way of thinking that is. Here's John. The one who the Bible had already taken enough time to go back into the book of Isaiah and talk about the voice who would be crying in the wilderness. And he says, no, Jesus, he's, he's the guy. What does this say about when we try to lift ourselves up above other people instead of saying, no, Jesus it's, it's about Him. It's, it's not about me. It's about what He has done, not what I am doing or can do or will do. It's about Jesus who came, the Bible tells us, from the right hand of the Father. And after He ascended back into heaven, returned to that place of power. And we're just kind of here. We're just kind of... Well, we have lives that are a vapor, a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow... And yet, we live in a world that so tries to just push ourselves higher and higher in the view of other people. We try to lift ourselves up to be more than we really are. We try to build ourselves up in people's minds, and that doesn't work. Because here we have John, and he is saying, look to Christ. He could have received all the greatness, but he deflected it and said, look at Jesus. And then we're introduced to Jesus. And so you expect after verses 7 and 8, you expect after John talks about this man who's going to come after him and who's going to be so much greater than he is, you would expect that here will come Jesus with all the pomp and circumstance. Here will come Jesus riding on some gallant horse. Here will come Jesus and he'll have all of his servants around him. He'll be put up on a throne and carried around everywhere he goes. That's what you would expect. Here is John and he's not worthy to be Jesus' slave. Surely Jesus is going to come to a lot of fanfare and excitement. But what does verse 9 say? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. It wasn't quite as exciting as we had anticipated Surely he came with with his servants and his fine robes, but that's not what happened. He was just a dusty carpenter from a place in that region that wasn't thought of very highly. His introduction is this one verse, and and there's no fanfare, there's no excitement, there's, there's, there's nothing that would just draw us to him because here's how great he is. Think about when the president of the United States arrived somewhere. I don't know if you've ever seen the president live in person. I had that privilege a few years ago in Charlotte. And when you arrived at this huge arena that the president was speaking at, there were guys in riot gear with machine guns standing outside. There's no lie. I mean, that's, that's, that's the protection they have. You see the Secret Service guys with the suits, right? Those are the guys who are close to the president. But I'm talking about this guy was standing outside in front of the arena with a machine gun. And you had to go through all types of security to get in. And then, of course, as you know, there's always the Secret Service guys are standing there. And these guys are the toughest of the tough and the best of the best. And if you ever see the presidential motorcade, it's very impressive, You have these SUVs, and then you have this custom-made limousine. And it's made, my understanding is, to withstand terrorist attacks, bombings, nuclear fallout, all of this. Why? Because the president is truly the most powerful man or woman in the world and are in need of protection. But Jesus just walks up to the river where John is at. And he walks down in the river, and he's baptized. I mean, it's almost like this huge letdown, right? We expected this guy was going to come and he was going to be awesome and powerful and everybody was going to cheer and be excited. He was going to go into town and he was going to kick all the religious leaders out and he was going to take over and then he was going to reestablish this throne that used to be there that his family used to occupy. He was going to set it back up and sit in it and he was going to rule the world. And in those days, Jesus came was baptized the great conquering king of kings and lord of lords when we get to verse 9 has humbled himself to the point where he has taken on human flesh and he has come before john to be baptized john understood how great he was john is not even sure that he wants to baptize jesus we read in the other gospels he's like i don't know about this because I know who you are, but Jesus humbles himself, and we need to understand that that's the example of the Savior for us. We should understand how great he is, as John the Baptist did, but we should, we should mimic Jesus. We should act like Jesus in humbling ourselves, in not thinking of ourselves greater than we are. and not thinking of ourselves greater than other people. But in humbling ourselves. What a great example. There are plenty of others, and we'll see them as we go through Mark. You read them as you go through the other Gospels where Jesus humbles himself. As a matter of fact, the greatest example we see of that is the fact that he humbles himself unto death, even death on the cross. Here it is, the God of the universe who has stepped out of eternity, stepped into humanity, has dwelt among his people, and he allows himself to be crucified for us. But we we let pride rule our lives we let our pride direct us so often we like to boast about things that are worthless we make huge deals and spend all types of time dwelling on things that do not matter at all for eternity We are often so guilty of that. And I think it burdens and saddens the heart of our Savior. Because he knows what he did here in verse 9 in coming to John humbly, not with fanfare, and being baptized. Now think about that. John has been baptizing all of these people for forgiveness of sins, for repentance and forgiveness of sins. And here Jesus comes, and what he's saying to John and what he's saying to everyone who's watching and what he is saying to us as we read this passage is, I am bringing myself to you. His ministry starts out with his baptism because he is wanting everyone to see and know that he is identifying himself with sinners, that he is going to have the experience that humanity has. We'll see next week that he goes out into the wilderness, and though Mark's gospel does not record this full account, we understand that he was tempted there. And if you study the temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness, and you go back and you study the temptations that that Adam and Eve face in the garden, you see that there's a, a correlation between those temptations. You would see later in Paul's writings that those temptations are common to all people. Except that you and I, when we fall into temptation, we give in. We might not do it every time, but we do it a lot of the time. Yet Jesus goes into the wilderness and he withstands that temptation. Why does he do that? Why is he baptized? Because he wants you to understand that he is like you. He has faced those difficulties. He has faced those hardships. When we see his life as we go through Mark's gospel, we're going to understand that he is like us. Except he doesn't sin. Except he doesn't give in. We see when he is praying on the night before he dies that he is so burdened with the task before him. The Bible said his sweat was like drops of blood because of the heartache that he was feeling. You and I have been there. We have felt that heartache and Christ wants us to know as he steps into those waters of that river to be baptized that he understands what we are going through. But what he wants us to do is respond like he did humbly. Not with pride. Not with boasting. Not with thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. John proclaims the greatness of Christ. Christ proclaims his humility. But look here at these last two verses, what God proclaims. And when he came up out of the water, he'd just been baptized, verse 10. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Think about this. He's he's come up out of the water. He's been baptized. He looks up, and the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice speaks out of heaven. John proclaims his greatness, Jesus shows his humility, but Jesus is still great even as he's humble, right? Because what does the voice say? You, this is God talking, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We don't have a lot of incident in the New Testament of God speaking out of heaven. This one and the account that we'll look at in the number of weeks from the Mount of Transfiguration, where God says, This is my son, listen to him, are among the two most prominent. Now, think about this Jesus has come to earth, he has left heaven and come to earth and dwelt with us with his people and at this time when Jesus is being baptized he's about 30 years old and his ministry is beginning and it's going to be a difficult ministry he is going to truly be a man filled with sorrow because even though he will have people around him for the most part Jesus is normally alone In some of the most important times in his ministry, he goes off to be alone and pray. Even his disciples who have seen him work and they, they know what he's doing, we're going to begin next week to see them being called to follow after him. These guys, they, they never truly get it thoroughly enough to understand. And so Jesus is so often alone. And he has humbled himself, leaving heaven, going to be baptized. And as he comes out and his ministry is beginning, God, his Father, speaks to him. And says, remember this, you are my son. And you I'm pleased. God reminds us by speaking these words that Jesus is great. And what Jesus did in coming to earth and going to the cross and dying for our sin was the thing that pleased the Father. God loved you enough that he sent his one and only son to come and to die in your place. And here in this first chapter of Mark, About three years or so before Jesus dies, God is reminding Jesus that he is pleased with this mission that he has sent him on, this mission to come into the world and redeem sinners. You and I need to be well aware of the fact that God was pleased with what Jesus did. See, we understand Jesus is great, and we see that he is humble. But so many people in the world today have this view that this thing that happened to Jesus in dying on the cross was some mistake, was some error, was some miscalculation by God, that that it was almost like it was a plan B. Jesus was supposed to do these things, but the people rejected him, and so he died, and that was plan B, and it worked out pretty well. The reality is what Jesus did in dying on the cross for us was his God-sent mission that pleased his Father because God wanted to redeem for himself, to save for himself a people. All those who come to him and repent, turn from their sin and follow after him. All of those who repent and believe he will save and how does this happen jesus is reminded right here at the beginning of the gospel that he his father is pleased with him that the father is pleased with his beloved son that what he is doing in identifying with sinners in coming to dwell on earth and to die in our place was pleasing to god And so if we have this great Savior who is also this humble Savior who died for us in this mission that was pleasing to the Father, shouldn't that mean something? Do you think that God said these words to Christ for you To live some mediocre life. Think about that. If God here is well pleased with Christ. Well pleased with the mission that he is doing. Well pleased that he is identified with sinners. And that he is beginning in his obedient mission to the Father. To die for these sinners. Do you think that he said that he was well pleased in Christ. For you to live some half hearted. Christian existence? I don't. I know there are a lot of gods out there that are okay with you being mediocre. There's a lot of gods out there who are, half, are fine with you being half-hearted. They're cool with it. They think it's great. The God of the universe who created you and sent his son to die for you is not numbered among those gods. He's just not. He wants your whole heart. He wants all of you. He wants you to stand there with John the Baptist when all this attention is coming upon you and say, no, no, it's all about him. It's all about Christ. It's all about the one who died to make you free. He wants you, when all this attention is coming upon you, all these opportunities to boast in yourself are coming upon you, to humble yourself and point toward Christ. He wants you to live a life where God could rip open the heavens, where the Spirit could descend on you like a dove, and He could look down at you and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, in you I am well pleased. And when we don't live a life like that, And what we're doing is we're building ourselves up. We're forgetting our humility. And we're saying to God that what He did in Christ is not near as important as the Bible says it is. He has given you and I the great opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then to take that message of the gospel, to receive it into our life, to have it transform who we are, to transform our heart and our mind and our actions. We've been given that opportunity to receive it, but when we don't, it's basically like just ignoring that the Bible even says this. See, what you're going to find as we go through Mark's gospel is we're going to find that Jesus is proclaimed as greater and greater and greater. He's able to stand in a boat in a raging ocean and speak and everything calms. He's able to raise other people from the dead. And the more and more and more that the Bible, that the gospel proclaimed him as great, the more and more humble he becomes. And the more humble he becomes, the greater he becomes. And the more humble he becomes, the greater he becomes. And the greater Jesus is recognized, the more humble he becomes. And it's a continuous pattern all the way to the point where he shows his ultimate greatness by going to the cross and dying for you. Where he went and he took the keys from death and hell and the grave. Where he bought each and every person here who is trusted in him. See, Christ's ultimate act of greatness was his ultimate act of humility. In dying for you. And so I challenge you this morning as you understand this. I I hope you knew it before, but if it's the first time you've ever thought about the fact that Christ has done something so great that it demands us respond to Him, and if we do not respond to Him, then we have no hope. Because only responding to the message of the gospel, this message that you are exceedingly sinful, but Christ has died for you, only in that do we have hope. Do we have forgiveness? Do we have life? So I challenge you with that this morning. When you open up, if you open up a book in your mind that is your life, this is what I'm doing, this is where I'm going, this is my goals and aspirations, this is what I hope to achieve, this is is the relationships I hope to have, whatever it is. Is it all sitting there? Everything you want to do, everything you've done, everything you plan or hope to achieve, its if it's not all sitting there on a foundation that is controlled by Christ, what good is it? I, I really don't care if you go out in life and make $100 million. its It's irrelevant to me if your kids turn out perfect and you have the greatest marriage and your bank account is full and everybody loves you at your job and and everybody wants you to, to be their friend and pat you on the back and none of that stuff matters. If your entire life is not undergirded by the greatness of Christ, if your life is not dictated by the humility of Christ, what value is it? A lot of people got a lot more money than I do. I'm made aware of that by the end of every week when my little text message pops up. "You might want to put money in the bank. You might want to put money in the bank." A lot of people are more popular than I am. A lot of people achieve more than I will. But it's all irrelevant. It's all irrelevant if Christ and the calling that he has placed on your life is not the foundation of everything you do. As we get ready to close up our service, we're going to do something that I think is a very appropriate reminder of this text, of the greatness of Christ and the humility of Christ what we're going to do is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. As you come to the end of the Gospels, you read of an incident where on the night before Christ was crucified, he gathered his disciples together and they took what was a Passover meal. Passover was and still is a holiday that the Jewish people celebrate to remember when God delivered them out of Egypt. And in that celebration, they would, take, um, they would take this animal and they would prepare it. And in the original time of Passover, if you go to the book of Exodus, you find that they took uh, the blood of this lamb and they put it on the doorpost of their house. And when they did so, it would signify that they were children of God. And so in this particular incident in the book of Exodus, this angel comes through the land and God is punishing the people of Egypt because they have enslaved his people. And so this angel comes through the land and everyone from the firstborn of the land that, don't have, that do not have the blood applied to the doorposts, they die. And so from that time on, God had commanded the people that they should remember this feast, they should remember this celebration that God delivered them. Well, on the last night of Christ's life, before he's crucified, he gathers his disciples together and they're going to have this meal. But when he comes to the end of it, he wants them to understand that this is unique for them. They still had not understood fully that he was going to die. And so he gives them this meal and he tells them that they should take it together And when they do so, they should remember his body and his blood, which were going to be given for them. And they ate that meal together, and from there he went on, and he would be arrested. He would be falsely convicted, and he would be crucified. And so since that time, for 2,000 years, the church, when they gathered together to take the Lord's Supper they do so to remember that ultimate act of greatness and humility. That ultimate act where Christ went to the cross to die. Because the fact of the matter is that without that, we would have no hope. And so this morning, if you are a member of Christ's family, if you have trusted in Christ, if you've been saved, and God has forgiven you, then you should take this as a reminder. In a few minutes when the deacons bring this around, you should take and participate as a reminder. But if you're not a believer, I would encourage you this morning to let let the, the plate pass you. And I encourage you for this because until we know Christ, there's nothing to celebrate at this table. What God wants us to do is to come to him and respond to him. And this is for his family. It's not for members of our church. Being a church member is not a requirement. But God tells us that this is for his people. And so before, we, before I have the deacons come and we begin to do this, I want to encourage you with this. I'm going to pray. And if you're here, And you've never trusted in Christ. You've never followed after Him. This morning, you've got to hear the good news of the gospel, that Christ has died for you. And what He calls you to do is to turn from your sin and follow Him. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And when I do, if you've never trusted in Christ, then I want you to do a couple things for me. First, I just want you to pray and ask Him for His forgiveness. I'm not going to give you a special prayer to check off your list. There's none of that. God is speaking to your heart. Just ask him to forgive you. And then when the plate comes around, take it and rejoice in what God has done. And then when we finish today, come and talk to me about it. I want to share with you more about who Christ is and what he has done for you. But this is a celebration That as terrible a day it was when Christ went to the cross, as, as bloody as it was, as horrific as it was, it was to buy you back from sin and death. It was to offer you new life and hope with Him forever. So I want us to pray. And after we do, our deacons are going to come forward and we'll take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that today we can come to your house. That we can pray together. That we can worship together. God, I would ask that tonight If there is one here who does not know you, who's never trusted in you or followed you, God, who is not a part of your family, I would pray right now that you would be speaking to their heart. God, that you would have them ask for forgiveness, that you would encourage them, God, of the need that they have. God, that you would reveal to them in their heart your love and mercy and grace. And that, God, you would save them. Heavenly Father, I am thankful that we have hope in you. God, as we come to your table, God, that it would always remind us of the sacrifice that you have made, And God, the hope that we have because you have showed us love and mercy in sending your Son to the cross. And so as we take from this table, God, help us to remember who you are and the great things that you have done. God, for those here who don't know you, if today's not the day when they turn from their sin and trust in you, God, I pray that you continue to speak in their heart. You continue to show them of your love and grace. God, be with us, leading guide and direct our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Invite our deacons to come forward. Read you from Mark's account, the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house: The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, and prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it. And just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is uh, dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written to him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we take from this table, God, we just pray that you would be with us, that you would guide us, and that, God, we would celebrate fact that we have new life through your body and your blood and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.